life. But to stay alive, we need food and drink. We need water and bread. But without this, we will only last a matter of days. Today, I want us to see that God wants us not to be just sustained, but he wants us to be satisfied. Not just sustained, but satisfied and satisfied in him. Now, by show of hands, who across this room has come across the drink prime? Oh, okay, I can tell by the, um, the groans. Here we go. Some, some people have definitely encountered prime before. Um, generally, the, if you have a, a teenager in your life or someone who's near a teenager, you will have encountered prime um, because... Um, since it was launched a few months ago, it, people have gone crazy trying to get hold of it. Certainly the younger generation in, in our household, we've known them get up early, go to multiple shops trying to get a bottle of Prime. Also, um, you may be familiar with um, the empty bottles being lined up in bedrooms, a trophy of we have Prime and I have drunk it. Um, when it was launched um, in Aldi, people were wrestling in the aisle to try and get hold of this. They're thinking, why? What is so amazing about this drink prime? It was launched by uh, a couple of YouTubers, and why would you drink water when you can have prime hydration? <laughs> Are we selling it? Are you, you feeling it? Norma, I can see that you're definitely tempted by prime. Yeah? Well, normally you'll be pleased to know that Tesco, as from tomorrow, Tesco will start stocking bottles of Prime. But there's a limit, uh, only three per customer, so normally you have to choose which, you're, which of your friends. Peggy sat next to you, she's keen to get a one of your bottles of Prime. Um, why? Well, actually, has anyone actually, some people must have actually tasted it. Has a few people tasted it? Only, only two people are, are admitting. Siski, you've tried it. You're trying it. Awful. It hasn't, it hasn't changed your life. No, I've, I've tried it. it. Yeah, it's kind of squash, really. I don't know what the, what, what the hype is, is all about. But why, why is it so popular? I'm going to put this away so you're not distracted by it throughout. Why? It's because they want you to, to buy into something bigger. It's not just a taste. We've established that. There's a thirst in us, isn't it, for, for meaning, for significance, to, to buy into what everyone else is doing. And there's something inside of us, isn't there? There's a thirst to be accepted. Today, Jesus is calling us not to some, settle for something less. He's calling us to spiritual food and drink that he supplies. We're going to read through uh, this encounter uh, in, in sections and stages, and I've asked Vicky to, to come and read. So the first section is John chapter 4, verse 1 to 15. John, I'm going to have to wear my glasses in front of everyone at church. And he was like, no, I think we can still get away with it for another six months, not to need glasses to read with. There we go. I was a bit like, oh, it's embarrassing having reading glasses, isn't it? You get to that age and you're like, it feels weird to put them on in front of people. So without glasses, but a bit like, uh. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. 
So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar. Checked that with John earlier. Near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. We're back on. There we go. So, this woman is uh, not looking primarily for prime. She's looking for water, um, and Jesus offers something greater. Before we actually dive into this encounter... Um, I'm going to do a mini-preach um, from the first few verses. A bit like, you know when you have a, a movie and they have like that little um, uh, mini-movie before the, the actual one starts? They, they don't seem to do that so much, but like, particularly Pixar movies used to have, you know, that little short. Um, this is a bit like that um, because I thought this was just a, such a helpful example of how to handle disagreements or conflicts or misunderstandings and how Jesus sets a, a, a wonderful example in this. So a, con- a controversy was starting to build. Jesus was getting um, more popular than John, and the re- religious authorities were trying to make a scene about it. But rather than allow an unnecessary distraction to, distraction to continue, Jesus leaves Judea and then goes north back to Galilee. And so Jesus shows three things and is an example to us about how we can handle conflict. Firstly, humility. Jesus here is, is the Son of God. He's come to this earth. He's the divine made flesh. If anyone should go from that place, it should be John the Baptist, not Jesus. Surely Jesus could pull rank here. But no, Jesus shows real humility in this encounter. Next, there's a, a heart for unity. Jesus has no problem. We've seen uh, throughout the Gospels in standing up to the religious authorities. He turns the tables in the temple. So it's not that Jesus is afraid of confrontation, but he doesn't want there to be a situation where he and John the Baptist are set up against each other in competition. He displays a real heart for unity. And then thirdly, there's a trust in God's sovereignty. Jesus in the Gospels regularly says that his hour has not yet come. He trusts the perfect timing of his Father. And he only does what he sees the Father doing. He knows that he doesn't need to force his own purposes through. If Jesus didn't take this decision to head north, we wouldn't actually have the interaction we're about to spend our time together exploring. He trusts the sovereignty of God. So if maybe here today you're facing a a potential for conflict, we're to follow the example of Jesus and approach with humility, 
with unity and trust in the sovereignty of God. There we go. That's a, a mini-sermon for free that you can take away and apply. But let's, let's get into um, this encounter with the Samaritan woman. And it takes place around a well in the middle of a hot dry land. Maybe we can empathize with that at the moment with our hot, dry weather. This gives a very visual prompt with, with the well there to communicate what Jesus is saying. The question is for, for this woman, the question for us is, will we look to water from this well or from another source, which will bring only temporary satisfaction, or will we come to Jesus and never thirst again? That's a huge, that's a bold claim, isn't it? It does mean surrendering all we are, but we gain more than we can imagine. Now, the first question I'd like us to explore is, are you thirsty? Are you thirsty? Because whoever we are, we have a thirst to be known and accepted. A few weeks ago, we encountered Nicodemus, one of the Jewish religious leaders who approached Jesus at night, and he wanted to come undercover and find out more about who Jesus is. The Samaritan woman that we see today um, comes to Jesus in almost the opposite way. Nicodemus came at night. He was a Jewish man. He was educated, part of the religious authorities, and held in high public standing. But in complete contrast, this woman comes at noon. She was a Samaritan, a woman, likely illiterate because women weren't educated in that culture, lived a lifestyle contrary to the law and a social outcast. Both of these people needed Jesus. And he was completely at home speaking with both of them at either ends of the spectrum. I wonder how you might see yourself today. Do you feel that you have it all together? Maybe a bit like Nicodemus, that things are going well, you have good standing. Or maybe you think, like the, the woman, you just don't really measure up, that you're, you're not good enough. I love this quote from Jerry Bridges. He says, Our worst days are never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And your best days are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. Wherever we are, wherever we think we are, each of us are equally in need of the grace of God. And there is an invitation to this grace today. Notice that Jesus begins the interaction with the woman with a question. Uh, verse 7, uh, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? Will you give me a drink? Jesus comes to us with humility. He chose to come to earth in the form of weakness as a baby and displays his human weakness here. We read that he was tired from the journey and he asked for a drink. Today, don't miss the voice of Jesus. You might be here exploring who Jesus is, what it means to follow him. Jesus invites you in. Because the question wasn't about water, it's about whether you would let Jesus into your life. Let me ask you, are you thirsty for him today? 
We can see that this woman was thirsty to be known and accepted, but there were many barriers that needs to be overcome. She was a Samaritan, and if you're familiar with the parable of the Good Samaritan, you know that Jews and Samaritans don't get on. Because after the Assyrians captured Samaria, they deported all of the Israelites of substance. Foreigners were then settled and intermarried in that place. And Samaritans were viewed by the Jews as both half-breeds and those whose religion was tainted and corrupted. The Samaritans had set up a, a rival temple in 400 BC. And here Jesus, we read, was going from Judea to Galilee. The most direct route was through Samaria. But many of the pious Jews decided to go the long way around so they wouldn't defile themselves by having to travel through Samaria. Jesus decides to go through. He is not defiled or made unclean by anything. He has contagious holiness. And also there's a a sense of divine appointment about Jesus taking this journey. It says in verse 4, he had to go through Samaria. So she's a Samaritan, that's one barrier. She's also a woman, and in this culture, men speaking to women were seen as, as a waste of time. Women weren't valued. Their testimony was not admissible in the law courts. And so it's incredibly countercultural that Jesus would have spoken to this woman and to have women amongst his disciples. Jesus shows clearly that he values her. And then the third barrier we see was that of being a social outcast. The general practice was for women to go in groups to go and get water. And they would do it either earlier in the morning or later in the evening when it was cool. No one would go in the middle of the day when the temperature was hot. And no one would go alone. So we can see that by her lifestyle, she's been rejected by others. She might have been mistreated by others, but also she would have made poor decisions as well. But Jesus accepts her. Jesus sees this woman, and he sees you today. You may think there are too many barriers. You might think that you don't know my past, my addictions, my overwhelming fears. You don't know the hurts or the skepticism that I carry. It may also be that you've been a Christian a long time and you're feeling dry. It can feel hard when you're just going through the motions as an invitation to you too. The interaction shows that Jesus breaks down every single barrier so that the thirst that we carry to be known and accepted can be found in him. Jesus was subject to shame when he went to the cross. He was an outcast. He took the punishment for our immorality so that nothing will stop us from coming to the living God. Jesus then starts to talk about the kind of water that he offers. We read in verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. At this point, the woman is is confused. Jesus has nothing to draw water with. Usually people would carry around a a leather flask while on a journey so they could use it when they came across a well. But Jesus has nothing. She's missing what Jesus is saying, thinking that Jesus is promising some amazing, life-transforming drink like Prime, as we've all experienced. But rather, 
Jesus is offering spiritual satisfaction. We read in in verse 13, Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. I wonder, where are you looking for satisfaction today? For me, sometimes it can be as simple as getting to the end of my to-do list. Very rarely happens. But that's a goal for us, isn't it? We need to do everything we've set out to do. Or it might be, if I look a little bit deeper, I can see that often I'm I'm driven to meet the expectation of others and, and not let them down. I wonder where you're looking today. Sometimes it can be just about our own happiness. You say, what do you want for your life? I want to be happy. And it's Jesus saying here that he's here to make us happy. With God, does it mean that our lives will go exactly as we want? They will never get ill and will never suffer. And then how does this match up with our often painful experience? Well, as we read God's word, we see that satisfaction comes when we seek God first. Psalm 42 says, my soul thirsts for the living God. Jeremiah 2.13 says, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they've dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. When we place ourselves first, we end up with broken cisterns. Why would we exchange the flowing, pure, clean water of God's faithfulness and grace and goodness for broken cisterns of our own making that will never truly satisfy We need to reject this idea that satisfaction comes when we seek our own happiness above all. And this can seem counterintuitive, but the secret of true satisfaction comes in not focusing on us at all. We need to fight this tendency to focus in on ourselves. And this even comes in 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 our worship songs. I often scan them through just to kind of see, okay, what what truths or what messages are our worship songs portraying? And there's one um, popular uh, uh, song, and in the bridge it says, you make all things work together for my good. You make all things work together for my good. You think... That sounds about right, based on Romans 8.28. But I don't know if you notice there's a subtle difference there. In Romans 8.28, it says, We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. Notice the focus there is not on us, but our focus is on him. The, The good of those who love him, our focus needs to be on him first and foremost. Focus on him first and our good and our satisfaction will follow. Unfortunately, the line doesn't quite scan quite as nicely in the song when you put that in. So I can understand, but it's important to see. Make sure we are not at the center. God needs to be at the center of our lives. We're not to see as God as a kind of cosmic Santa Claus. Jesus calls us for complete surrender. It's only when we confess our sins, say, Jesus is Lord, and live for him that we know real satisfaction. This is how God's upside-down kingdom works. Surrender your life, and you will save it. And just before we move on, notice how the woman is trying to work out who Jesus is. 
verse 12, she says, Are you greater than Jacob, the great hero of the faith, the founder of this nation? He provided this well. How can you do better? Well, Jesus is promising everlasting water. He promises everlasting life. And as we read in John 17, verse 3, it says, Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life, eternal water, is knowing the one true God. And it's an eternity where we can know full freedom from sin, from pain, and from suffering. And the way that we can know God is through Jesus. So he doesn't have anything to draw water with at the well, but he is the way that removes every barrier and all our shame. When we say, Jesus, you are greater than Jacob, you are greater than my own happiness, you are the Lord of everything, then we can know eternal life. So who today would you say Jesus is? If you're exploring, we'd love to walk that journey with you as you seek to find out about Jesus. And if you've drifted, we'd love to help you find your way back to him. Let's continue in the story. Let's read verse 16 to 26. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming, and has now come, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Thank you. So the woman wants this living water, and Jesus asks her to get her husband. And reading that, you can think, have we missed missed a few verses. How did those one thing relate to the the other? But Jesus knows that something isn't right. She's in disgrace and distress. Here, she's come to get water at, at noon in the heat of the day by herself. You don't need to be prophetic to know that something is going on. But then Jesus shows that he knows her completely. You've had five husbands, and the man living uh, with you is not your husband. Jesus has come to deal with her deepest needs. Her actions are are causing pain and places her as an outcast. But Jesus has come to deal with her shame, to bring wholeness, and to transform her. And he'll do the same for us. Then the woman tries to move the conversation on. It could be a genuine question that she's asking about the location of worship, but it feels like she's trying to divert Jesus as she doesn't want any further revelations about her lifestyle. Her question is about worship. 
The people of Samaria, as we've seen, had a distortion version of Judaism. They only used the first five books of the Old Testament and thought the place of worship should be Mount Gerizim rather than in Jerusalem. Jesus replies to her that true worship is not fundamentally about geography or of times and places, but it's an attitude of the heart. Jesus is bringing about a new covenant. We come to God because of who he is and what he has done. We don't need priests or sacrifices to bring us to Jesus because Jesus is the priest. Jesus is the sacrifice. Jesus says that God is not just after worship, but he's after worshippers. He's after worshippers. Because this is about relationship. Jesus didn't come with a slick advertising campaign that met real people in real situations. And he calls people to a life of full surrender. Because it's possible to, to offer worship on a Sunday morning and then live completely contrary to God during the week. But as God is not after a section of our lives, he wants all of us, yes, worship on Sundays, but also at home, in our workplaces, at the beach, in the park, wherever we are. We can struggle with this. And it's similar to the struggle with wanting our happiness as primary importance in our lives. And we can treat God like an all-powerful butler that we ask, can you do this for me? Can you give me a, a parking space? Can you help me get that job? Can you fix this pain in my body? Now, God does want to do these things for us. But we need to check our heart attitude and remember that God is the one over all. Because this drastically changes how we approach, it, approach him. Um, Tim Keller, I was listening to a talk that he gave and uh, brought this insight about the vastness of God and our heart attitude to him. So he said, consider if the distance between the earth and the sun was represented by the thickness of the sheet of paper. So in your minds, um, this represents 93 million miles. Have you got that? Steve's in. 93 million miles. That's a distance between the earth and the sun. So then if you imagine on this same scale, the distance from the earth to the nearest star would be the equivalent of having a stack of papers 21 meters high. Okay? You're still with us, Steve. So I, I, I love this example because we can know that the universe is big, can't we? But actually when you try and get your head around it into a new level, you think, God, is vast. So... Um, the distance between the Earth and the nearest star, 21 meters. The diameter of the Milky Way would be the equivalent of a stack of paper over 300 miles high, which again just blows our minds in terms of the vastness of God. And not only this, keep in mind that there are more galaxies in the, the universe than we can number, more than dust specks in the air, or the grains of sands and the sh on the seashores. And then, as we read in Hebrews 1, verse 3, Jesus Christ holds all this together with the word of his power. We have a God who is vast. And then Tim Keller asks, is he the kind of person you ask into your life to be your assistant? 
Is he the kind of person you ask into your life to be your assistant? When we see the vastness, the power of our God, we are to humble ourselves in worship, and we are to be those who are worshippers. How do we worship? Jesus says we worship in spirit and in truth. But these two work together um, in bringing life-filled worship. We worship in truth, considering the majesty of God, just as we've, as we've done there. And as we proclaim truth, as we, we worship Sunday by Sunday, as we seek to see our lives fueled by truth, when we think of his love, his kindness, his power, his knowledge, his freedom, this helps us. But if you're feeling discouraged, we can let truth feed and shape how you feel because the truth changes how we act. Um, last year, you may have seen an article on the, the BBC website. Anyone see this? So this is in Kenya, um, and three wildlife officers were, were, were alerted to a, a lion loose in the area. And so they kind of closed down the area. People told to stay indoors. Um, when they got there, uh, they cautiously approached and then realized, if we go to the next picture, um, it turned out to be a carrier bag um, with seedlings inside. It's important for us not to be driven by how things appear because there are things that seem to be true or our feelings which can so easily dominate and drive our lives. We need to bring them to Jesus and submit them to his truth. We can, we can say we feel unloved, but we're to submit to the truth of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. We're to let this truth shape how we feel and for us to respond in worship. And then we worship in spirit. As we worship, we're to expect God's power and his presence amongst us. We're to know we're the very presence of God. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. We're not just to know the truth, we're to experience it as well. And God wants us to know his presence, his goodness. And he uh, pours his spirit on us. He gives us his gifts of prophecy, of languages, of discernment, so we can know the dynamic presence of God. And these two work together. As we see more of the truth of God, it gives us a hunger for his presence. And the spirit breathes on the truth and brings it alive to us and increases our desire to know him more. So worship is God-focused. It's not about us. It's not about our preferences for songs or for style or for the way the band sounds. And as we leave this place Sunday by Sunday, we don't want primarily for people to say, weren't the band incredible or wasn't the preacher good or wasn't the coffee exceptional? We want people to be overwhelmed by the goodness of God. We do want to work hard on the other stuff as well, but we want people to be overwhelmed by the amazing nature of God, knowing that he's seeking worshippers who worship in spirit and in truth. Okay, next section, verse 27 to 38. Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I've ever done. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way towards him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. 
But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have bought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Thanks. Now, the third question I'd like to ask is, are you a witness? Are you a witness? And this woman is a a brilliant example of of being a witness, and it shows how simple it can be. Verse 29, she says, Come see a man who told me everything I've ever done. Could this be the Messiah? We simply say what we've seen and say, Could Jesus be the one that you are thirsting over to? It sounds simple, doesn't it? But the reality is that it's often really hard to do. Telling people about Jesus can sometimes feel like an extreme sport that only the really crazy would actually do. Even uh, getting out on the streets to pray is something that we can have a natural aversion to. We were out as a life group this week going and praying the streets, which was brilliant to go and do. But you have to kind of overcome that kind of inertia, thinking, actually, wouldn't it be much nicer to, to meet in a nice house and talk and encourage each other? But it's so important that we have a sense of God has called us to go. We're to know this thirst for the living God, to worship him completely, and then to go and tell what we have seen. Even the disciples noticed, started quizzing Jesus for talking to someone who wasn't part of their group. Why, why are you talking to her? But as we go, we're to tell our stories, to share the experience, and to give an invitation When we meet Jesus, we're to let our joy overflow. When we realize our thirst, we then let ourselves be transformed in our worship and go as witnesses. And we're to go and call others into this gospel story so that God receives more worship. And we're to go in the power of God. Remember the God who we worship in his vastness, in his power, He holds the world in the palm of his hands. And God also says that the harvest is ripe. He goes with us and he goes ahead of us. We partner with him in this. Jesus kept his eyes on his father. We read in verse 34, My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Part of being satisfied in the living God, is to do what he calls us to do, to do his work. This is our bread. This is our food. Part of being fully satisfied is living out God's call because truth is lived out. It's not just head knowledge. Jesus was obedient to talk to this woman. I wonder where is Jesus leading you even this week? Part of the challenge is going thinking, I don't know what to say. Now, we don't need to have all of the answers. We just point them to Jesus and say what we've experienced. We're all on this journey of following Jesus. Let's be drawing others to see it as well. 
And then just to finish off our section, verse 39 says, Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I've ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. That's an incredible verse, isn't it? Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. A woman transformed by the grace of God has become a worshiper and draws others in to see the truth that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Every single barrier can be broken down. There's no one too far that cannot be reached by God's grace. And they believe not because of her words, but because they have met Jesus. This is what we're after, isn't it? This is what we want to see. Lives transformed, leading to other people being turned around by Jesus. This is how God's designed the spread of the gospel. So today we've asked three questions. Are you thirsty? The reality is we're all thirsty for acceptance, for significance, to be truly satisfied. It's only in Jesus that we can know true living water. Will you say yes to this invitation today? Second question is, are you a worshiper? Because worship is hardwired into us. We all worship something, whether we realize it or not. Will we, worship to, and, uh, will we surrender and worship the living God? Give up putting ourselves at the center of our lives and worship him in spirit and truth. And then are you a witness? Will you tell of what you've tasted and what you've seen? Each one who's put their trust in Jesus has a unique opportunity to reach those around us and point them to Jesus. Jesus calls us to be satisfied in him and only in him. Let's be expectant of an encounter with him today. I invite you to stand. Let's respond together. Lord, we do thank you that in you is found living water. We thank you that You've made us, you've designed us so that we can know fullness of life in you. And we pray, Lord God, won't you be moving in this place where we may know that real thirst. We pray, Holy Spirit, won't you come now? If you want to know an encounter with Jesus, why you just raise your hands and say, Jesus, won't you come? Holy Spirit, won't you bring your refreshing? God's here by his presence. We don't need to attain a certain standard. We don't need to do anything but put our trust in Jesus. Say, Jesus, when you come. We pray, Holy Spirit, when you come, fill us that we may be those that have our hearts for you and that we would overflow in sharing your goodness to those around us. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Lord God.
Let's keep looking to him as we respond.